0: Hello and welcome to NER Out Loud, a podcast series from the New England Review. I'm Callie Jansen.
1: And I'm Gavin Richards. And today we are joined by Irish poet Nessa O'Mahony to discuss her poem, Killeen, published in the summer issue of NER, volume 44, number 2. Killeen
0: is titled after Ireland's historic, unconsecrated burial sites of the same name, which were occupied by unbaptized or sinful classes, from stillborn infants to executed criminals.
1: The piece appears as part of a larger special feature, Irish poets in tribute to Ivan Boland, honoring the late poet's expansive literary career, which O'Mahony herself names as an enduring inspiration for her work. Join us for a discussion on Ireland's hidden histories, the changing landscapes of memory, and the role of poetry in reckoning with the past.
0: But first, a reading of Colleen from author Nessa O'Mahony.
2: Killeen, Valencia Island, 22nd of the 8th, 2021. You'll find it on the highest road transcribing the island, from sea to mountaintop. Watch long enough and patterns of stone, angles of earthworks reveal careful placement, the habits of memory. Three thousand years they have come here, honoured their dead, buried their shame, consigned their prayers to fire, smoke, ash, a small bundle of cloth. Unnamed even in God's eyes, but remembered century after century. If not the loveliest spot on the island, it's the most forgiving, offering the warmest embrace of bog and grass, where nothing grazes, not even the hares run through it.
0: Nessa O'Mahony, we are delighted to have you here on the N.E.R. Out Loud podcast. Would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners?
2: Sure. I'm, I'm Nessa. I'm a, a Dublin born poet and I'm, I'm living here with my husband and Border Collie. Um, I have uh, today published five volumes of poetry, um, a crime novel, and I've edited a range of different anthologies. Most recently, the Poetry Ireland Review special tribute to Ivan Boland
1: well thank you so much for the reading that was absolutely lovely um when i first read the piece i had no idea i didn't know what a chilean was and so once i had actually read it for the first time i was really interested in this idea as the footnote in the issue actually says you have this a chilean contains both people who are legal offenders among other groups as well as stillborn and uh, unbaptized babies. Um, and so in that sense, I, I found that grouping really interesting to, interesting to me because you have what most people see as a very guilty class of people and what some other people see as really innocent innocent uh, group as well. And so I was really wondering how that combination makes sense to you. And, and to be more specific, how did this idea of Achilleen seem like the perfect tool to centre your poem around and how did how did this the story behind the piece uh, come into fruition, I guess?
2: Sure, sure. I, I suppose Killeen and, and I think there's something like there are nearly 1500 of these um, enclosures all over Ireland, um, some of them thousands of years old, some of them maybe a matter of centuries, but they have been traditionally places of unofficial burial if you like uh, places where people who mightn't be accepted by the official church who you know maybe unbaptized babies or or shipwreck victims um you know a diverse range of souls who for one reason or another um weren't deemed suitable for the official sanction of a church burial and um all of the, all that that entails. So so these killing could be places where, you know, somebody might bury a child, a, a stillborn or an unbaptized child at the dead of night, you know, not wanting people to know that they had had this child and, and the child is buried, but they want a place to be able to visit. Um, And and I think the fact that for whatever number of millennia, you know, I think there it's something like 10,000 years since there have been people on the island of Ireland and certainly um, some of the stones in the particular Killeen that I'm talking about in this poem on Valencia Island date back, you know, three thousand years. There has been always this need for for humans to mark the spot where an ancestor is buried where a descendant is buried where somebody who they care about is laid to rest and it is a sacred space whether it's sanctioned by the church or not it is a sacred space um and so i i used to visit valencia um very regularly as as a as a younger Uh, person and wasn't aware that this space existed at all because it's at the top of the island in the middle of a road, as I describe, uh, along the top of the island. And and the islanders would know its existence, but it's not one of the tourist places. Um, And so it was only in the last few years when I was back visiting with my husband and staying there for a period of time and driving around that I saw the sign and stopped and began to investigate and 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 realized gradually the, the the links both near historic links and prehistoric links uh in this one particular place and i've always been fascinated by archaeology um that's that's a sort of a lifelong obsession and and i regularly write about archaeology in my poetry um, but at the time when and ivan had died the previous year, 2020, um, and I was looking for ways the Border Collie speaks. I was looking for ways to talk about um, her presence. Um, she died during Covid. She died at a time when um, six people were allowed to attend funerals. So in normal times, Ivan's funeral would have been a massive event. Everybody would have come and celebrated her life and her work the way we did when Seamus Heaney died. But because this happened at the start of COVID, it was just the six members of her own family and the rest of us watching on 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 a live stream, I suppose. So all of that was playing into the fact that we hadn't had a chance to kind of attend her to her final resting place. Um, and she was somebody who was very conscious of history and the way we mark history in the landscape. So that seemed to sort of feed into this idea of exploring how we remember people and the spaces that we choose to remember people. And that very long sort of period of time that that remembering people covers if you have prehistoric uh, stone rows alongside much more recent um, stones and, and many of the people buried there wouldn't have had a stone at all. But people would know. That they were there because ancestral memory would last long enough. So it all seemed to feed in both with my own sort of general obsessions, but but also that sense of that connection with the past that Yvonne always explored in her own writing. And now that she, sadly, is part of a past, um, remembering that through this sort of exploration, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. You mentioned that you went to Valencia Island as a as a child. Did you ever encounter the the Killeen there?
2: No, not at all. Um, I wasn't aware of the archaeology of the island really, really at all. We, You know, Valencia was a place to go down to the pier and watch the fishermen and um, go on to beaches and things. But but and and I, you know, it is actually an island that that's quite unusual in in, in Ireland in that it has a whole layer of. um, um. How would you describe it? it? It has a big link in telecommunications in that it was the first location of the transatlantic cable in the 1850s. They laid a cable between uh, Newfoundland. And Europe and and the west, southwest coast of Ireland was the place where they chose. So there was a whole um, institution that was built up around that. Um, So there's a big cable station and there's lots of information about that. But far less information about the more distant past, the archaeology. And and actually, Valencia is very rich. I've I've, um, more recently... Um, thanks to uh, a friendship with a, a wonderful guy called Owen O'Neill, who who is a um, historian and yeah has a great interest in archaeology and is now living in Valencia. So he has um, recorded videos around, about some of these places and, and shown us some of them. Um, so I have become a lot more aware of what is there. But the thing about the Killeens is that they tend to hide in plain sight. If you're driving past, it just looks like a green field with some stones. You're not really aware of the, the sacredness of the space. And what is also great, this is something that has probably only happened in the last couple of decades around the country, is that local communities have been much more interested in preserving them, cleaning them up, leaving little sort of uh, you know plaques explaining what they are, um, so rather than them being places of shame of, oh, you know, we don't talk about the the shame of the unbaptized, these these are places that are acknowledged as part of the community. Um, and people can visit and, and, and I suppose think about their own communities, their own uh, losses, as well as sort of understanding the context of the place that they're visiting so so I think you know they're very special places Killeen.
0: I'm particularly fascinated by this idea that you've been touching on of kind of the people constructing sanctity on their own of how this space the Killeen was never historically designated as a particularly consecrated space or anything official but has transformed into this space that holds a lot of sanctity and in your piece Killeen captures a lot of tranquility. And I guess what I'm curious about is how you approach that in your art and what your intentionality is in terms of reconciling sites of historical insensitivity with a more empathetic modern perspective. I suppose
2: it's it's to a certain extent about recovery of stories um and and being able to read a landscape with with a knowledge that I you know we mightn't have had before um and th- i suppose there's a very particular context in ireland around the whole notion of you know sexual shame and and why it was felt necessary that that if you had a a baby out of wedlock you weren't going to get church acknowledgement of it and so the only thing that you could do if the baby died was sort of bury it in the ground somewhere um there are So many awful instances in Ireland of of that kind of of shame um, where people are sort of left to their own devices. Um, But there's always the evidence and it's whether it's that stone in the field or a plaque um, and, and one of the really good things about the more recent past in Ireland is our preparedness to talk about this, those stories to, you know, there's, there's a whole separate narrative about mother and baby homes at the moment in Ireland and the fact that um, for decades, unmarried mothers were sent off out of sight to have their babies and their babies were adopted, often illegally and sent off to the States and elsewhere. Um, so you buried the sin, you hid the sin, you sold off the sin. Um, and, you know, it would be very hard to, to, to find the documentation of that. But part of the work that's been done by many campaigners in the last couple of decades is to just bring the, those stories into the open, find ways for people to kind of track down um, their own stories, their own parts of, of, of that, and then to acknowledge those spaces, as I've said, where... In, 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 in previous centuries or previous decades, people would have felt, well, you know, there is shame, um, but there is forgiveness in this space. And what I really like about the notion of, of a space like the Valencia Killine, where the people who were burying children would have been aware that there was a 2,000-year-old Wedge Tomb or, or Stone Row or that there was always something sacred about that space so that, you know, there was something larger than the, the narrow confines of Catholicism that would have just sort of, you know, condemned them to sin, that were, there was something welcoming and forgiving about that particular space. So... Um, I think we have, you know, signs of that all over the place from from distant history, from from recent history. We're a hundred years on from our own civil war. You'll still find fields with crosses marking the spot where somebody was killed by somebody and buried. And the community know that. Um, They're not ready quite to exhume the body in. Give it a Christian burial, but there is a spot marked, and there is a sense of a kind of a, a communal knowledge of that. So it's those kind of hidden histories, if you like, that I'm 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 really interested in, and 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 linking back to, I suppose, Ivan's project. Ivan, throughout her writing life, wanted to bring back stories that weren't told, whether they were you know women's stories. Uh, People eluded from history, even even the famine, which for a long period of time, just nobody was writing about because I think there was this collective embarrassment and shame that we managed to allow three million people to either die or have to emigrate on 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 the island. Um, So it wasn't a subject matter uh, for writing, but Ivan brought that back in along with so many other sort of narratives, both, you know, drawing from her own family history and elsewhere um, to explore and to say this is as important and as valid a subject for Irish history as anything else we might want to write about. So so I think consciously and unconsciously in my own writing life, um, it's been those sort of topics that I've 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 been curious about. I studied history in college um so you know i always am interested in the story behind whatever it is whether it's the official narrative or a stone in the ground
1: i'm really interested in this idea of yours that your poem in a way and the larger narrative behind it kind of serves to reclaim what has been kind of lost in history or swept behind like these people and in a way giving dignity to it and i'm curious. Given that claim, do you see your own poem as serving to call out a certain uh, like group or a leader or something like that, or is it is it any way doing that? I'm just curious.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I'm I'm I guess I'm making a face because um, they who are without sin should throw the first stone, and I certainly wouldn't sort of put myself up there as as a critic of anybody else. Um, And I think it is important to contextualize what happened then and what happens now. Um, We are a very different society. Yes, you know, we still have our flaws. There are still um, sources of shame from time to time. But but in in a general sense, that sort of um, repressive uh, rule of law that uh, the Catholic Church exerted for, for so many centuries does not exist anymore. And I think people's kind of sexual behaviour and, and treatment of each other is much more open and much freer as a result. Um, but we can't forget. The way things were and, and it can be very easy in in a period of of comparative um, freedom. To forget that it's only a matter of decades, I think the last Magdalen Laundry, which was a place, again, just to, to explain to your listeners, um, one of the options for the unmarried mother. If they weren't going into a mother and baby home, was to go into a laundry um, run by nuns where they might do the washing of um, the, the clothes of local priests or it could be an industri- industrial scale kind of laundry. They wouldn't be paid because essentially they were paying off their sin of being un- an unmarried mother in the first place. Um, and they were kind of indentured servants. They couldn't get out. Um, and the last one of these in Dublin, I think, closed down sometime in the mid 80s. You know, so so that's definitely within my living memory. Um, And so whereas that sort of thing could not exist now, we can't forget and we can't forget. The significance of all of those signs in the landscape, Um, because it's about kindness, it's about acceptance, it's about, um, you know, accepting the other. And, And that is something that is the recurring problem I think for for humankind our our ability to demonize the other in one way or another so 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 yeah I suppose if if
0: I have an agenda it's just about making sure we don't forget things you've been touching a lot on Ireland's history in particular and Ireland for centuries has had a lot of oppressive forces to deal with both internally whether that's the institution of Catholicism, the Civil War, but then also externally, I mean, colonial subjugation from British forces. Many, many things have kind of shrouded the country with a a sense of tragedy for a lot of people. And I guess, in a way, the Killeen is a microcosm of that habit you've said, the habits of memory, how a lot of histories have had to be hidden. And I'm curious if you found um, that this habit of hidden histories cropping up in Ireland is one that's quintessentially Irish if this is something that's particular to your geography and whether or not you found other hidden elements of your country's past
2: yeah I'm, I'm not sure if it's uniquely Irish I think it it it's a sort of a um a recognizably human instinct not to face up to the difficulties of of a past so so You might say in Ireland, whatever you say, say nothing, but, you know, there might be other contexts in other countries where the easier thing is to just move on and not acknowledge rather than um, stop and talk about, you know, what might be going wrong. I, I think what has definitely changed in Ireland and it probably started, we've had, we've actually just come out at the other end of what we've called the decade of centenaries because starting in 2012 which was the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Ulster Covenant which was Ulster saying no to any kind of sense of joining up with Ireland in any kind of political union so we had that we had the Easter Rising which was 1916 so 2016 was the centenary of that we had world war 1 being the great war being commem- commemorated so 2014 to 2018. Uh, then we had the War of Independence in Ireland, which was 1919 to 1921, so 2021 was the gonna end of that. And then we had the Civil War, which everybody was sort of saying was that this is going to be the toughest to commemorate because there's still disagreements. Uh, you know, our political system for the longest time was divided between the two sides of that Civil War conflict. The ones who thought We had done a deal with 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 England and a treaty and it was, you know, freedom to achieve freedom. And the others who said, no, you're selling out on the Republic. You're accepting partition and uh, the creation of Northern Ireland. And we can never accept that. So so that's what the Civil War was about. And it was never officially ended. It just kind of petered out and politics continued and people couldn't acknowledge Both the incredible violence of that time and the fact, you know, brother was fighting brother, you know, there were people being killed in appalling atrocities all over the place. So you just didn't talk about it. That was the Irish solution to the Irish problem. Move on, don't talk. So, this whole process over the last 10 years, there have been publications, there have been symposia, there have been documentaries on TV. And very importantly, there's been a sort of an Ireland of Ireland approach, particularly when talking about the the uh, Irish participation in World War One, because 200,000 Irish people fought mostly for the British army in World War One. But when they came back, they couldn't talk, you know, anybody who did come back and it was a small proportion of that 200,000, most of them died in the Somme and elsewhere. But... When they came back, they came back to an Ireland that was almost on the cusp of the War of Independence. So they couldn't. They were targets now. Uh, The people who had sort of um, they'd left waving flags. Um, Sean O'Casey's play, The Silver Tassi, is a wonderful play exploring that whole idea of that shift in public opinion, you know, waving off the heroes in 1914 and then condemning them roundly and trying to kill them when they came back in 1918. So that island wide discussion was really important uh, that, you know, people realised that there were far more things joining us than dividing us. Um, and I think it is a very good pattern or a very good model of how how to deal with a contested past. You don't ignore it. You talk about it. You find the stories. You tell the stories. Um, you keep that record, that archive. Um, so I think I think we've learned a lot of lessons from that over the last. That well, it was the world's longest decade. I think it was about twelve years of a decade. Uh, but we've learned a lot, uh, and going forward, I think I think we can continue to, to draw on those lessons.
0: I'm curious if you, as a poet, as an Irish artist, feel a personal sense of obligation to talk about that past, given the enormity of the past and how it continues to affect the present Irish society?
2: I I do in a way, and it's it's partially the, the personal. But then, you know, if you talk to any Irish person and ask, uh, you know, particularly my, my generation, my grandparents would have been um, young adults during the War of Independence and the Civil War. My grandfather fought in World War One, came back and joined the struggle for Irish freedom and was in the War of Independence and the Civil War but talked about none of it afterwards. And so I'd hear some stories from my mother about this and then got more and more curious. I so did my own research, I, as I said, studied history in college when I was a, a young woman. And so it felt very natural to be using poetry to tell those stories because we hadn't heard them. And I think that has become progressively um, more common. We had a whole um, project here in Ireland called Poetry is Commemoration, which was a sort of a, a joint between University College Dublin and Poetry Ireland, uh, just going around running workshops in libraries and, and, and centres all over Ireland, getting people to talk about their own family stories in the context of that decade of, of commemoration that I had been talking about. And there have been extraordinary stories coming out of that. So, so I think for me, it was the fact that that wasn't part of the official narrative. You know, when I studied history, we we learned about the treaty negotiations, far less about the Civil War and definitely very little about the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and those decades that shaped our country. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do feel that there's a way to tell the universal through the personal to the specific. And so... You know, I in my case it was it was my, my my grandparents' stories um as a way into that larger Irish narrative, yeah.
1: We've been you've been talking at least about how Ivan Boland.
2: I've been talking a lot.
1: <laughs> no. We love it, we love it. Um but you've been speaking a lot about the influence on Ivan Boland on <clears throat> your personal writing and career. And I'm curious as well about how she has left an impact on irish writing and poetry on a global scale and your opinions on that as as we know uh you have actually co-edited an, an anthology of critical and creative responses to her work
2: yes uh, and 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 most recently something something i'm actually working on at the moment an anthology of writing by women many of whom were part of a series of workshops that ivan taught in the 1980s um you can't overstate the impact that Ivan had on women writers in, in this country, because um, th- through so many different layers, both through her own writing and the subject matter that she chose. So, you know, being prepared to, to talk about breastfeeding and, and motherhood and life in the suburbs and history. And woman's role in history and 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 all of those allegiance, those things that we exclude that I, I was talking about earlier so subject matter incredibly important and and people finding in her writing as sort of a permission to write the sort of poems that they wanted to write about their lives um but also very practically through the work that she did to um facilitate workshops all over Ireland at a time when these weren't happening. It was it was Arlen House, the, the, the publisher, the feminist publisher, Catherine Rose was the director at the time, and they started this Women's Education Bureau with a view to just offering opportunities. Um, Yvonne was very conscious as she came of age as a writer that there were so few role models for her you know, of of women writers, not that they weren't. Uh, you know, certainly Um, there's been a lot of work more recently uh, rediscovering people like Frieda Lawton and uh, Blanitz Salkald and, and a lot of women who were writing in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, but they weren't being anthologized and they their, their, their work wasn't been kept in print. So when Yvonne started writing in the 60s and the 70s and she was looking around for other women writers that she could continue the, the conversation with, it was to American women poets that she had to turn because there were so few um, peers or role, role models. So, so, you know, she would talk a lot about the influence of um, Adrienne Rich um, at that stage of, of her writing career. But through the Ireland House workshops, she um, worked with, you know, so many tens and tens and tens of women writers who were still writing now and who talked in the period after her death about the importance of, you know, having that chance to talk with her about the process of writing, about the seriousness of the craft, um, you know, the rigor-ness, rigorousness that you need as an editor of your own poetry. Um, I mean, that's one thing that I personally didn't, I'm sad to say, have the opportunity to do because I really only uh, came upon Yvonne's work uh, in the late nineties and she had moved to Stanford at this point. Um, so I never got a chance to do to a workshop with her. but by God, it sounds like the most divine, slightly terrifying, but wonderful thing to have done. so so both through the work, the wonderful poetry, through the really important uh essays, Um, It's hard to think of another Irish woman poet who has written quite so extensively uh, about her own poetics and her own project. So to have that as a kind of a resource as well, but then to be aware of just the importance of of the work that she did um, through the workshops. You know, you can't, as I said, overstate her importance and her impact. And I think people will be reading her poetry for decades and decades
0: to come. Thank you so much for that. And as we're wrapping up here, uh, we wanted to know if you have any work you're working on right now that we can look forward to, anything we can anticipate coming from you soon.
2: Well, I am editing it. Ha- There's been a lot of editing over the last while. And as I said, I'm editing this anthology. Um, I, a, a scoop for the podcast. It's called Tearing Stripes Off Zebras. It it, it It's a quote from a, one of Yvan's, uh poems um, but it's an anthology of writing by women who one way or the other were connected to Ivan's project uh, in in the 80s and who've continued to write wonderful fiction and non-fiction and, and, and drama and poetry since then. Um, so again Arlen House very appropriately is going to be publishing that and it should be coming out this September. Um, every so often I have a bit of a spasm and I write a poem So I'm hoping the academic year has just ended today for me. So I'm hoping there will be a few more spasmatic um, outputs of poetry over the next while.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute delight to hear you speak about your work, about Yvonne Boland and all of, you know, her legacy and everything that she's left us.
2: A very, very real pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you so much.
1: Nessa O'Mahony currently lives in Dublin. She has published five collections of poetry, most recently The Hollow Woman on the Island in 2019. She co-edited Ivan e. Boland, Inside History, a book of critical essays and poetry celebrating the life and work of the celebrated writer, with Siobhan Campbell, and co-edited Days of Clear Light, a drift for Jessie Lendeny, with Alan Hayes in 2021. You can find Nessa O'Mahony's poem and the rest of the feature in tribute to e. Boland in the New England Review, Volume 44, Issue 2.
0: Visit anyreview.com to read and hear more from NER, as well as to purchase print or digital editions of recent volumes. If you enjoyed what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to NER Out Loud on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. And remember to subscribe to the New England Review so you don't miss our latest issues. This episode of NER Out Loud was written, edited, and produced by Callie Jansen and Gavin Richards, summer interns at The Review. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth, and all other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions.
1: From NER Out Loud, I'm Gavin Richards.
0: And I'm Callie Jansen. Thank you for listening.